the only authority I have is the possible virtue of my life. That's the only authority each of us has. And this is, to me, what the Bodhisattva speaks to. It unleashes our virtue. It unleashes our empathy and our compassion for all beings and the truth of our actions. It, the, the idea of the Bodhisattva allows us to move forward into a being that could fulfill this virtue. In many ways, that's what these sutras are about. Actually establishing the possibility of a being that is present and compassionate and always working for the wheel in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Kotatsu John Bales began practicing Zen in 1972 at the age of 19 at the San Francisco Zen Center. He was ordained a Zen priest by Richard Baker Roshi in 1977, spending time at Tassajara, Green Gulch Farm, and the San Francisco Zen Center until 1984, when he moved to the Boston area to study and work. In 2004, John returned to community Dharma practice and received Dharma transmission from Zokatsu Norman Fisher. John is the founding teacher of One Heart Zen in Somerville, Massachusetts, and serves as the Buddhist chaplain at Wellesley College and the guiding teacher of Monmouth Zen Circle in Monmouth, New Jersey. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. So John, thank you for coming. Welcome to the podcast. Before this interview started, we were riffing a little bit. And you were mentioning that you were talking this morning about uh, bodhicitta. And I'm wondering if you could just bring us back to this morning and what brought that up and, and why, you know, why that appeared for you this morning. Well, uh, I'm working through with a student right now, the Vimalakirti Nirdesa Sutra, Bob Thurman's translation. Great sutra. And um, he had questions uh, about bodhicitta. Hmm. And uh, this particular student, we've been working for a while together, and we've just gone through a compilation of uh, over a hundred uh, Zen koans mm. that I put together um, over about six years. And um, I'm always impressed at how uh, Zen koans are deeply reflective of 
and expressive of the Prajnaparamita literature, of which, of course, the Vimalakirti Nirdesa Sutra is. And also, one of my favorite texts is the large sutra on perfect wisdom, by um, translated by Edward Kunze. And it just so happens that he had this take on the thought of enlightenment, and I'd like to read it to you. The thought of enlightenment is A. Now we have to remember that Edward Kunze was a philologist. So A, the decision to win full enlightenment or all knowledge. B, the desire for the welfare of others. Emptiness and compassion are its two constituents. It makes one into a bodhisattva. The term is used twofold. One, for the initial first production of the thought of enlightenment, the vow. Two, for the marching towards enlightenment. In the second sense, it covers the entire career of the bodhisattva. And marching towards can also be considered in translation from the Sanskrit, setting out. So continually setting out. So, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? That means continually setting out. (laughs) Daily, momentarily, Mm. moment by moment, you know. Uh, It means uh, basing our life in uh, the Bodhisattva vows. And... um, responding compassionately and inclusively to all beings that are in our life, no matter where we are. So we could be in a monastery or we could be in a temple, but frankly, most of us are not. Most of us are sometimes appearing in a podcast. (laughs) Other times washing dishes or taking care of a 96-year-old mother-in-law or grieving over the death of a grandmother or another close person whom we haven't been able to be with because of COVID. The question here is uh, the nature of compassion, the nature of the warmth, the depth of feeling that drives our vow, and the opening to that, which varies in each of our lives. And yet we're called on to respond. and. Um, most of our life is about exploring our response and bringing it to loving kindness and compassion in the moment. And of course, loving kindness and compassion take many forms. And so when you were working with this student this morning on the sutra, can you can you help me understand a little bit about know what how you see your role with this person who's you know because you know some of these practice when we say that loving kindness and compassion it it can be very abstract in a way right so how as a teacher do you work with somebody this way well you know um we'll say the kalyana mitra the spiritual friends practice their presence their radiance, their very response to the student in the interaction embodies the compassion, the love, the kindness, and are 
very lives do that. Along with the detail of the examination of the very words of the sutra and what they bring to mind. In my way, in my mind, it's a little bit like um, playing a musical piece together. Mm. Each one of us has a different response or maybe even a different phraseology for uh, um, a section of the music. And then how do, we, how do we explore that with one another? What's the difference? What's the integration? Uh, what's another way of looking at it, holding it up and turning it upside down or inside out? What does that spark in you? One example would be we were discussing uh, the first chapter of the Vimalakirti Sutra on purification. Mm-hmm. And in Zen, generally, nobody talks about purification, but the entire process <laughs> is purification. The t- entire Zen process? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, it's, it's a process that is very much based in uh, 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 a uh, non-dichotomous purity. So the expression of um, we wash ourselves with dirt Dirt is pure. I heard this by way of mouth. My, my Zen teacher, my first Zen teacher, Richard Baker, said this to another fellow. He said, you know, in Zen, we practice in the garbage dump. <laughs> and what he meant by that is we don't visualize another place. Right. Um, if I, I wouldn't put it exactly like this, where we, we look at but it's not like we look at. We're present to how things, and again, as Suzuki Roshi would have said, how things is. Um, and we don't try to push away uh, nasty thoughts or feelings. But we don't also attach to good ones. But we don't deny them, you know? Right. We stay with them. So the work of loving kindness, you know, it's funny, I, I base a lot of my my practice in a, in a short, uh, or my work with students in, in uh, a short guided meditation by Tara Brock on loving kindness. So most people, Zen is complete loving kindness, meaning loving kindness to this, to our breath, our heart, our diaphragm, our bowels, our toes, our lips, our eyes. And when we really begin to be present in that way, truly compassionately, and alive, giving life or allowing life in our body, that begins to affect not only us, but other people. And then that's the second stage, is we, we share this loving kindness, we radiate this loving kindness. Maybe we first tentatively explore, how do I share that with someone I love? Because it's easier. We know what that feeling is. But then it's, the next, how do I work with someone I'm neutral to? Someone I don't know, the postman. The postman that I can identify with because I have suffered and I know what I would like in life, as the Tibetans say, happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something uh, in, in my early days of practicing Zen, which was sort of like not spoken about, right? Happiness and Zen, it was, you know, there were, there were crazy people who would smile and do funny things. But we were practicing the form. Right. And we were uptight. 
And we weren't letting go of our belly. And we weren't <laughs> letting go of our heart. So if we talk a little bit about personal journey, you know, I, I practiced at the San Francisco Zen Center for 14 years, and it was, it, it's still unpacking for me. It's still emerging in every conversation uh, what, what I was exposed to and what, what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it's like, you know, I thought when I was 32 or so after I'd done this since I was 19 that, yeah, I practice Zen. I know. I know. Right. I can practice Zen. Why? why uh, I've got to go do something else now. I can't learn here. Hmm. But uh, uh, it was like I couldn't broaden or develop, I thought. So I went off to university. I went off to business. I, I, I got married and uh, to a beautiful and loving woman. And, and uh, we, uh, we um, somehow have gotten through 30 years of marriage together, you know. But uh, what I want to say is that it, if you think the Zen Center kicks the shit out of you, mm. once you open and you're out in life, <laughs> if I said there was a realization, but more I would say it was a breaking open occurred in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, strangely enough, uh, my, my formal practice actually laid a groundwork for me to move through. Mm -hmm. But still, I, I imagine, but I'm not sure, <laughs> had I stayed within the community and been able to do all the things I could do very well and look like a Zen priest, and be treated like a Zen priest, and be respected, and you know, as as happens in Thailand, people. So, another jump in the in the script here. Um, I'm leading a, a portion of a ceremony with the chaplains at Wellesley College, and setting up for it. And I'm sitting by this large, uh, not large, small densho bell that was a gift to the college. And of course, me being the Zen Buddhist priest, right? I sit in front of it, cross-legged, and and ring it. <laughs> oh yeah, everybody to order, right? Yeah. So I'm sitting there getting settled, and across the room, I hear this venerable, venerable. So I'm wearing an okasa, right? Uh -huh. And I venerable, venerable. <laughs> yeah. Venerable. Oh, you mean me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never been in a culture that even acknowledged that a Zen priest was anything. Maybe in a Zen center, yeah, you know, right. people have their whole pecking order and what it means to be a priest and not. And everybody's quite discerning, but uh, out here in the world, it's like, you're what? Right. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, um, exactly. Well, then what? What do you really do? Yeah. <laughs> what do you really do? <laughs> you know. Um, but but when something like uh, bodhicitta is a concern, mm -hmm. when something like uh, you know uh, a Zen koan is a concern, or something like um, the real relationship of language to reality, mm -hmm. and exploring that, and being tossed into the abyss, and having to find our way out. Mm -hmm. This is something very hard to do without a practice. It's hard enough to do with a practice. With a practice, yeah. <laughs> totally. I'm sitting here. I'm not moving away. Mm -hmm. My eyes are open. And yet I'm totally 
averting anything and everything. And, and I put up with this every day and every day. It's sort of like I'm sitting on the edge of a volcano and it's bubbling down there. And I'm, I've gotten myself to the edge, but am I going to jump in? Am I going to let go? This is each of our choices. No one can push us. In fact, if we're pushed, I don't believe it has the full quality and effect in our lives that's required to be authentic. And it doesn't mean that we need to jump in either to be authentic. Mm -hmm. It, It literally means that to accept exactly who we are and what we experience of ourselves. And and that may seem abstract, but in the Zen world, it's completely visceral. Yes, right. This is physical. This is sensorial. Mm -hmm. This, you know, we can talk about knees and things like that, but but this is, uh, uh, there's, there's worse pain than our knees. Oh, the 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 pain of my brain is uh, or my mind is way worse than my knees. So, uh, uh, my, one of my favorite sayings uh, uh, from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche is, uh, "Revulsion mm-hmm. is the foot of meditation." And what I take that to mean is is that the 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 entry to uh, samadhi. The entry to uh, full engagement mm-hmm. is often the result of that revulsion of our self that is holding us back and continually, repetitively doing these habitually stupid things. So let's just unpack that a little bit because I I think. I understand what you're saying, and I'm very intrigued. And I'm very intrigued by it. But it's the the desire, the longing to sit through the pain, right? Is or the willingness to sit through it is found because the revulsion that we're experiencing um, is great enough to inspire us to do what we need to do. Yeah. The, you know, to be present to our fear or to be present to our mm-hmm. or to be present to uh, just how deluded we are and how repulsive that is and how we do it over and over again. So the courage that we, that we bring to the mat yes, is, exactly. is in a sense there because the revulsion of this sense of separateness or whatever, however we experience well, it is. You know, you think about things, it, it can even, it can be ourself. But it mm-hmm. can society, right? You're right. It can, it, you know, just before coming on uh, wherever we are online, I'll call it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, read Yeah, a where is this space anyway? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we should get Vimala Kirti to send out for <laughs> rights in another universe and bring it in. We're yeah. already in his living room. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, 
uh, I read a little piece about Emmett Till. And Emmett oh. was the teenage black person killed in Money, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, just the description of what these two men did to him mm-hmm. and how he was left in the bottom of a river and how nothing happened to them. And, uh, well, you know, they went to court, but they were really, right. I find that revolting. Yes. This, though, is something that I, other than in this moment and with you and with everyone I address going forward, what can I do? The ghost of Emmett Till and the ghost of these two men Mm -hmm. are informing our society today. They're present with us. Oh, well, this week, the Breonna Taylor thing came out this week. So so what is this and and what is compassion? And and how do we relate to one another? You know, what what do we see when we are in the presence? What do we experience with one another? Mm-hmm. So many of us. So I've learned over. Uh, I don't know what to call it. You know, um, I don't like to call it uh, students. Uh, I prefer to be uh, uh, Kalyanamitra. I prefer to be a spiritual friend. Mm-hmm. Because literally, I cannot make you do something. And I do not, I have always resisted authority. (laughs) Okay. The only authority I have is the possible virtue of my life. Mm -hmm. That's the only authority each of us has. I agree. 100% 100% I agree. Yeah. And this is, to me, what the Bodhisattva speaks to. Hmm. Say more. It unleashes our virtue. It unleashes our empathy and our compassion for all beings and the truth of our actions. It, the, the idea of the Bodhisattva allows us to move forward into a being that could fulfill this virtue. Hmm. In many ways, that's what these sutras are about. Actually establishing the possibility of a being that is present and compassionate and always working for the wheel, uh, not WH, of all beings in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, uh, whether it be uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a computer programmer or uh, a teacher or um, a, street, a homeless person on the street. You know? Mm-hmm. These, this, uh, uh, while there, is, uh, there are adverse situations, right? Each one you could probably find what would easily find what you could say would prevent you from practicing. <laughs> and we're so adept at this that it's, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we even use practice to prevent us from practicing. <laughs> How so? Well, well, this is the thing, you know, I'm practicing. Yeah. Yes. Well, and it gets in between you and me. I'm practicing my idea of practicing. Uh-huh. 
So one of the remarkable things, so, so Zen koans, um, one, one side story of it is they're abrupt and shock you into silence. Yes. Boom. The other side is they open you up to infinity and Indra's net. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of playing music together and the silence of that very music. You know, I really love that idea of teacher and student playing music together or, you know, companion, spiritual friends. Um, I, I, I do see it that way. And in, in, I, you know, the teacher that I work with has years more experience than I do. Um, and yet I think she also likes having me as a student uh, because of the, the music that I play when I'm with her, mm-hmm. like it's f- not just going through a system, but there's this exchange that is rewarding as well. This is incredibly important. This exchange mm-hmm. is the deepest and most intimate and most beautiful creation. Mm-hmm. And even the forms are about bringing us together into the, even with resistance into the willingness. Mm-hmm. The forms actually corral the teacher and the student, if we call them that, to walk into what we call tokusan in my world. Right. The formality of it. And there you are, all of a sudden, face to face, three feet at most, away from one another, you know? Wow. What do I say? I had a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's truly one of the very few places where you confront another person and i mean that in the best way not in mm-hmm. a negative way but like you are sitting just you can touch them they're so close yeah, exactly. and and the person is saying you know give me one live word yeah tell me a word i haven't heard before right ah, this puts us so to speak on the spot but literally if if we're working in between these meetings Mm-hmm. We go away into our own riff and our own practice and so on. And then we come back and it's like, oh, yeah, boom, boom. But this takes time. It does. It, yeah. it, it not only takes time, you know, we could say, uh, uh, what, so you read these end stories uh, and, and these mostly guys, except for there's this beautiful book that some Dharma, two Dharma sisters of mine put together called The Hidden Lamp. Oh, yeah, it's a great book. It's quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then with all of our Dharma sisters uh, um, talking about their own experience and, and their own understanding of these stories, it's just totally beautiful. Um, but what, these people are people who've been interacting, most of them, for some long time. They've been carrying the music for a while, they've been walking around with their instrument, you know? So when they meet, it may look like boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. But that's in the context of they're already in the same space. Mm -hmm. Or they're making that effort, you know? And and this is uh, something I think that our culture, the modern world, uh, doesn't necessarily appreciate that 
many of these conversations that are happening between people who've been practicing for 10, 15, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Many of the people who practice Zen in China, in monasteries and so on, had already been Vinaya monks and had been studying the sutras and exposed to Buddhist culture as it was in China for years mm -hmm. before they reach the point where they realize, well, it's not just the sutra. How do I make this live in my life? Mm -hmm. It's just not someone else's explanation. The truth is right here. It's between us. Right. Us. And, and this is the world of, of compassionate response, compassionate responsibility, and holding up our end. Because, of course, we're not all one, right? I mean, we're totally different people. We are human right. beings. Right. We're, speaking. we're one and we're not one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is important. We are all yeah. produced by causes and conditions that are different. It's not any different from a flower that's the same type of flower, a dahlia, say, brought up in the sunshine with great compost and watered versus one in the shade. The color, the fullness, everything is different. Mm -hmm. um, it's still a flower. It's still beautiful. What is its particularity that is so beautiful? You know, um, what is the uniqueness of each of us to share and to communicate? Uh, I think these are these are revealed to us, if you will, over time and over effort, with vow, intention, resolve, and compassion. I wanted to take a little bit of a step back just because I heard you, you know, you mentioned Tara Brock and you mentioned um, Trumpa. Yeah. And you're in this Zen tradition, uh, neither of those two in the Zen tradition. And there's this curious thing that I don't know if it's now this is just the case worldwide and in Buddhist communities, or if this is something that's so uniquely sort of Western or American even, where, you know, you, you come from a traditional stuff. You know, one of the things that I, one of the most important lines, I think, in Zen mind, beginner's mind, is we have these forms that actually set us free. Like he talked, right? So you adhere to the forms because if you do, then you actually can be liberated much more than if you have no forms. But now we have all of this cross pollination, and you see people throwing in Pema children and, you know, Tignan Han, and, you know, like it's just, and I'm just curious about this cross pollination and, the, and how that relates to really your second or third generation teacher now. And the forms, I don't want to say that they're degraded, but maybe morphed in a way. And I'm just curious how you, you see the forms. And uh, When I showed up at the San Francisco Zen Center, I, I knew in my heart why I was there, what I was going to do, and what I intended to do. Uh, whether that exactly happened or not is another question. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, right. but um, 
uh, I had intention. Mm -hmm. And now what I find is people showing up and saying, well, how's this going to fit with uh, uh, how I'd like to live, you know? Or Uh, can I get here on uh, uh, Tuesday nights, you know, uh, when I could, you know, do six other things uh, that Facebook tells me about the events, you know? Right. Uh, so, uh, I, I want to, uh, I want to be loving and kind, but you know, I, I don't necessarily want to accept myself exactly as I am, uh, at least beyond the bounds of who I think I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, without form, there's no access to that. There, there, there literally is access. But it takes the form of of um, interrupting completely uh, someone's uh, sense of order of hmm. the world, someone's sense of what language means and who they think they are. Uh, this is, you know, a, a, a very difficult task in a society, any society. I, I found myself. Uh, uh, I used to say the West, and now I say the modern world. But I don't think this was any different in uh, ninth-century China. Mm-hmm. People have this delusion that you know there were all these uh, Zen people, like everybody was just being totally Zen, you know, and authentic, and whatever it was, whatever it is, they all knew knew the truth. But but you know, I think uh, as Wang Bo says, you dreg suckers. Most of us are drag suckers. What does that mean? Just, we, don't, we don't make the wine. We only drink the dregs. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And, and uh, so, so it's, uh, most of us don't want to hear about the sweating horses. Mm-hmm. We want to hear about the good stuff or what we mm-hmm. judge to be the good stuff. That's one difference I feel, but I, I also think that with Zen and the way it's been introduced in the United States, uh, it's taken a long time for, and I don't know that it's happened yet, but there wasn't a culture from which it emerged, like I'll say in China, that had an evolving relationship with Buddhism over hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. There was no context to understand or even think about necessarily a, um, a compassionate society, uh, being reborn as a Buddha, something like this, you know, a Western paradise, these types of things. Uh, nor was there exposure to these sutras. And generally, the people who studied Zen evolved from that group of what I'll call uh, experienced, at least, if not learned monks and nuns so they climbed up that proverbial flagpole of buddhism Mm -hmm. and then they were left there with this is still conceptual knowledge Mm -hmm. i'm placing something between me and and real experience there's this buddhism thing so what's this jumping off the pole you know but we don't have a culture that necessarily even gets us up the pole Uh uh-huh and even if you're someone who, who has the proclivity to, say, uh, explore the nature of semantics and language or uh, deconstructionism or any other number of 
wonderful places, even in film or in poetry or something like this, you're still pretty oddball in this country. I mean, most people want to be a lawyer or a business person. Most people want to make some bucks, have a car, you know, and on another level, this is all fine. Right. And then, uh, but how does it affect everything else in just on the earth, let alone the universe? But just on the earth, you know, what? And then how do we how do we justify, if you will? Is there justification? And then what's a life based on justification? But then even if you try to be pure, even if we try to be pure, including me, mm-hmm. I don't know that I try to be pure, but, <laughs> but I live a pretty simple, straightforward life uh, that's been reorganized by having life kick the crap out of you. But <laughs> you you get to know what works, what nourishes your mind, what nourishes other people's minds, what nourishes our life, what brings life to life, what gives life to life. So that's generosity, that's Donna, the first perfection, right? Um so we give ourselves to Zazen. We give ourselves to a koan. We give our attention. This is all a gift. It's a gift that's even arrived to us. Where did attention come from? Where is it? Uh, we don't know. It has no substance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Kotatsu John Bales encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for One Heart Zen at oneheartzen.org, and I'll include a link to the Zen Center in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope that you'll join me again next week.